Before we start this podcast, just a quick word to say that this episode was recorded on Thursday, the 30th of April. Since then, we've seen a high-profile pre-action letter issued challenging the government's lockdown measures. Although we won't be talking about it on this podcast, do keep an eye out on future blog posts. You can subscribe to the Herbert Smith Freehold's Public Law Team's blog through the links in the show notes to this podcast. Hello and welcome to the coronavirus edition of the Public Law Team's podcast here at Herbert Smith Freehold's. My name is Sahil Kerr and I'm an associate in the team here in London. This is a difficult and unprecedented time. And first off, I hope you and your families are all keeping well and adapting to your new working arrangements. I'm joined today by Andrew Lidbetter, who heads the public law team in London, and Nusrat Zah, who's also a partner in the team. What we hope to do with this podcast is provide you with an overview of the government's legislative response to the crisis in the UK, explain some of the key legislation and how it's working in practice, and then we'll briefly turn to the Administrative Court to see what's happening while we've all been in lockdown. So without any further ado, let me hand over to Andrew. Thanks, Sahil. Uh, To echo what you've just said, it's a truly exceptional emergency and it has led to an unprecedented response from the government with far-reaching measures. Uh, The starting point is perhaps to understand how the UK's response has been coordinated so far. Essentially, uh, we're seeing a combination of four things. First, primary legislation, that is, Acts of Parliament. Secondly, a large number of statutory instruments, mainly through the passing of regulations through powers given under primary legislation. Thirdly, government guidance, uh, such as the key worker guidance. And fourthly, executive announcements, such as the PM's announcement in the early stages, ordering the closure of pubs, etc. And Andrew, when you mention primary legislation, you are mainly referring to then the Coronavirus Act of 2020, is that right? Yes, that's right. Although I should note that there were existing acts that covered similar ground to what is in the Coronavirus Act. For example, one of the early questions asked of the government was why the Civil Contingencies Act of 2004 wasn't being used to coordinate its response when it appeared on the face of it to be designed specifically for emergencies of this nature. The reason given by the government was that the Civil Contingencies Act was meant for unforeseen and urgent emergencies and there was therefore a risk that any secondary legislation passed under it could be struck down if such urgency could not be demonstrated. However, and we'll come on to this later, there may also be a more practical reason. The Civil Contingencies Act has strict parliamentary scrutiny provisions that the government might have viewed as slowing down its response. So turning back to the Coronavirus Act, What distinguishes it from other acts is that it gives the government and local authorities sweeping powers specifically to deal with the present crisis. Initially, a lot of decision-making and guidance was based on goodwill without any legal teeth, but the Act changed that. The stated aims of the Act are wide-ranging, to ease the burden on frontline staff and mitigate the impact of staff shortages, increase the available health and social care workforce, 
contain and slow the spread of the virus, support people and manage the deceased with respect and dignity. The provisions reflect these extensive objectives and they range from the power to suspend port operations to the power to order the closure of premises. I should also note that a separate act was passed in the Scottish Parliament to deal with devolved issues such as housing and justice. Um, well, I suppose the next logical question to what you've just said um, is, and I wonder uh, how the government has dealt with this. Uh, so what are the checks and balances to these extensive powers? It's a good question and one that was speculated on considerably when the Act was passed in March. A key concern was the sunset clause. That's a clause that sets out the time period after which the powers under the Act would expire. The Act provides for an initial period of two years. There were concerns that this period was excessive, particularly when wide-ranging emergency powers had been granted to the government and other public authorities. It was suggested by some MPs and commentators at the time that the grant of such powers should only be to the extent that it was necessary and proportionate, and consequently should be granted for a shorter period of time, at least initially. By contrast, under the Civil Contingencies Act, emergency regulations are more rigorously time-limited. They have to be made afresh every 30 days and lapse seven days after they are laid unless both Houses of Parliament have explicitly approved them. So following these concerns being raised on the floor of the House of Commons from both the Conservative and Opposition benches, Section 98 of the Act now provides a mechanism by which Parliament can review certain key powers contained within the Act every six months. Matt Hancock has also assured MPs that the powers will be used only when strictly necessary and only for as long as necessary to respond to the crisis. There's also now a provision for Parliament to scrutinise the Act after one year once the government publishes what's known as a one-year report. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so moving on to the second limb, secondary legislation, what have we seen so far? A bulk of the government's response has been through regulations. At the last count, we've seen more than 60 coronavirus-related statutory instruments laid before the UK Parliament. That's in addition to some existing regulations which have also been amended. So we're a long way off the levels we saw before Brexit exit day, but these are still large numbers of statutory instruments. The regulations are not being introduced only under the Coronavirus Act because there are also existing legislation such as the Public Health Control of Disease Act 1984. For example, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions England Regulations 2020, which are the most prominent set of regulations, uh, as they order the closure of pubs, as well as set out the stay-at-home directions, were introduced under the 1984 Act. Most of the regulations are passed under the negative procedure. That means that the statutory instrument is laid before Parliament after it has been made by the Minister, but is subject to annulment if a motion to annul it is passed by either House within 40 days of it being laid before Parliament. The regulations can therefore be subject to little or no parliamentary scrutiny before being signed into law. 
we're clearly dealing with an urgent emergency, but it does open a debate about the need for swift action on the one hand and the adequacy of checks and balances on the other. As you'd expect, the departments producing the highest number of statutory instruments are the Department for Work and Pensions and the Department of Health and Social Care. However, the Ministry of Justice has also produced seven statutory instruments which reflects the adaptations that the court system has had to make. Another aspect of such rapid lawmaking is that there are inevitably omissions and errors in the regulations that are being corrected all the time or additional points are raised. For example, the main lockdown statutory instrument I referred to earlier was amended more recently to change a key restriction from saying no person may leave the place where they are living without reasonable excuse to saying that no person may leave or be outside, i.e. the addition of words or be outside. Thanks, Andrew. Um, and as you said, it really is a fast moving feast. Um, I know you and I have been trying to keep a running list of all legislative changes in response to COVID-19 and it hasn't exactly been straightforward. Can I move next to Nusrat? Um, Nusrat, we've seen a considerable amount of guidance coming from various government departments. Can you give us a bit of background on what kind of guidance we're seeing and how it all fits in with the acts and the regulation? Thanks, Sahil. As Andrew mentioned, the government has issued numerous pieces of guidance and these are on really important topics. For example, the key worker guidance effectively sets out who can and can't send their children to school during the crisis. Similarly, the government has issued guidance through an open letter to the construction sector, setting out how operations should continue on construction sites. And then there is, of course, the main Public Health England guidance on social distancing. In the ordinary course, guidance can either be issued under powers granted to the government in a specific piece of legislation, or through a more general exercise of prerogative powers, or also it can be guidance which isn't provided for in legislation. So the latter might, for example, be a layman's explanation issued to assist the wider public. As a starting point, on the face of it, most of the key guidance doesn't appear to flow from a specific power given to government under an act. The guidance does appear to be purely executive announcements without any specific legal obligations attached and without any specific statutory basis. So on that basis, the guidance isn't strictly binding. But in practice, during a pandemic of this nature, it's difficult to ignore such guidance. Um, that's interesting, Ms. Um How then does this marry up with the specific legal requirements set out in regulations? Yes, I think there's two really interesting aspects to this. First, I think we're seeing a situation where there is a gap between the guidance and regulations on certain key issues. And the most obvious example of this is on social distancing. Public Health England's guidance is detailed and sets out several points of good practice, for example, staying two metres away from other people. The government has also announced other guidelines suggesting that one should only leave the house for one form of exercise a day, but the relevant regulations don't go as far as that. And so this has led to a situation where there's a gap between what public authorities, such as the police, think people can do and what the regulations actually require. With the police having the power to levy spot fines and also charge people with serious criminal offences, that gap has been a cause for considerable concern. 
So this has in turn led to more guidance from the police, clarifying the do's and don'ts for people leaving the house. For a fast-moving crisis like this, such issues are inevitable, but there is an argument the government could have been clearer on what the rules actually are. I think the second interesting issue is perhaps on how businesses should view guidance. Andrew and I have dealt with several client queries on what the status of guidance is. This has cropped up in different contexts, but a recurring query has been on whether the guidance being issued amounts to a change in law under the terms of various contracts, that is, whether it was binding. Beyond what I said earlier about the non-binding nature of the recent government guidance, our view is that any future disputes arising out of whether or not guidance is binding are likely to be seen through the prism of the COVID-19 outbreak. In particular, if parties are arguing over whether or not a particular piece of guidance amounts to a change in law, the courts could conclude that the guidance or announcements should be seen as binding in view of the overlap between the issues being dealt with in the Coronavirus Act and associated regulations and the guidance or general announcements. The court might be inclined to read such clauses purposively, but that's pure speculation at this stage. And of course, we're going to be keeping a close eye when the first such case does come before the courts. And that's actually a nice segue to the last topic uh, we're covering today, uh, namely the admin court in the age of COVID-19. Nushat, what are we seeing in the admin court? Well, as a starting point, it's good to see that the admin court has stepped up its capabilities. Mr Justice Swift, who's recently taken over as judge in charge of that bit of the High Court, has been in constant contact with the Administrative Court Users Group and the Bar Council. The Administrative Court Office has also issued guidance dealing with urgent and non-urgent work, which it updated on the 6th of April. The Court has adopted a number of new practices which are set out in the guidance. In particular, all applications and claims, including urgent applications, are now to be filed electronically and the court office will no longer accept applications over the counter by post or by DX. We've anecdotally heard of successful hearings over the telephone and that document sharing has worked well, so all of this augurs well for the future. Looking at your question, Sahil, from another angle, the admin court has also seen some early challenges to the government's response. The government's stay-at-home guidance was challenged on the basis that it had a disproportionate impact on adults and children with certain health conditions, including, for example, those with autism and mental health conditions. Following pre-action correspondence, the government confirmed it had amended the leaving home guidance to make it clear that those with health conditions that require them to leave their homes more than once a day and travel beyond their local area are expressly permitted to do so. And this goes back to Andrew's point about how quickly decisions are being taken and the inevitable gaps this has led to. By way of another example, a pre-action letter was recently sent to Public Health England and the Department for Health and Social Care expressing concern about the government's guidance regarding personal protective equipment in hospitals. And two NHS doctors are arguing that guidance issued by the government is unlawful. So that's another one to keep an eye on. I think it will be interesting to see how the court deals with a challenge of this nature should it reach a hearing. In particular, I'd be interested to see how the courts enable open justice. We may well see the first ever admin court hearing live streamed on YouTube. Thanks, Nusrat. And 
We are living in very interesting times, Ned. Um, well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Um, thanks very much again, Andrew and Nusrat, for your very valuable insights. Um, the show notes to this episode contain some useful links, including our briefings on the Coronavirus Act and our recent blog on Article 1, Protocol 1 issues. Um, please do subscribe to our public law blog if you are interested. There will likely be more COVID content, but we are also aware that things aren't standing still on other fronts. As always, your feedback is very welcome. If you've got any questions, please send them through to us. Our contact details are also in the show notes. Otherwise, please do take care and stay safe. Goodbye.